Let me pray. Dear God, you know uh, better than anybody in the room how unfit I am for this task, and um, so I'm just always glad to look to you. And remember that you bless, um, bless us according to your goodness and grace, and not according to our merits. Uh, your ways are often puzzling and rightly uh, beyond us. So we do humble ourselves before you. We humble ourselves before your word. We humble ourselves before the one uh, that it reveals to us. We thank you for him. Thank you that he is all he is, that he is um, the creator of all things, that he is the one who forgives us and cleanses us from our sin robes us in righteousness, grants us peace with you, and that he is also our Lord and um, dear friend. Thank you that he is all that he is. Forgive us for being blind and nearsighted and deaf and idolatrous, indifferent. So we pray against all of that, and we pray... Uh, that your work would be done here uh, for your own glory and for uh, the good of our, our neighbors around us here. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for these friends who choose to spend this time this way. Bless them in it and for it, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Excuse me. So last week, we looked at the two sections of Mark and Matthew that you see uh, Luke drops out on at the bottom of that uh, handout that you've got in front of you. And today what I want to do then is um, pick up with the feeding of the 5,000 that you see in all four Gospels and then we will get to Peter's profession and I'm not sure whether we'll quite get there today or not. Um, but you see that that's also in all four Gospels. There's at least a version of it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a similar version, but I think John has another version, as it were, of Peter's profession of faith. In between that feeding and Peter's profession, Matthew and Mark give us a fair amount of material. Luke drops out because that material is given to us, I would argue, in the same order. And then John also uh, skips from the feeding of the 5,000 and the crossing back across the sea where Jesus walks on the water goes from that right to um, a discourse on, on the feeding and then a call to follow. So that's what we'll be doing here. Um, but to do it, I want to work again in, in Mark's material. Uh, when I do this class, I've done it a few times now, I try to do something additional and different as much for my own uh, edification as anything. So this summer, I did, tried to do a pretty careful reading of the Gospel of Mark, and, and our, our pastor was actually preaching through Mark, so it worked really nicely. So I, I just really stayed in Mark for a few months. And, and there was an interesting theme that developed somewhere in there. I think it begins in chapter 6, but it's the theme of bread. It, it never occurred to me that bread became the theme that it does in there. And... But it does. It's there in Matthew as well, somewhat in Luke. Um, and then it gets picked up, interestingly, in John's Gospel. 
as well, uh, in, a, in a wonderfully new and richer way, perhaps. But I'd like you to just kind of walk through this with me and, and see where it takes us. Because the issue of bread goes hand in glove with a question of the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is and what he's about. So what I want you to be thinking about for the next 10 or 12 minutes is what was it Jesus wanted his disciples to understand? What was it he wanted his disciples to understand? We begin in chapter 6 where he's sending them out in verse 7, giving them authority, instructing them in verse 8, um, take nothing for the journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Interesting. They are not to take any bread or money. That's probably worth recalling as we work on through this. Then they go out, they come back. We have in verses 14 and following the account of, of Herod and John the Baptist. And then in verse 30, the disciples come back, they report, they go out for a while, the crowds follow, and we have the feeding of the 5,000. These people are hungry. His disciples say to him, we really ought to send these folks off to get something to eat. Jesus says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. Disciples haven't got a clue what to do with that. Jesus asked them in 30, verse 38, what have you got? Got some bread? How many loaves do you have? Oh, uh, you've got five loaves and two fish, they say. Jesus commands everyone to split up into groups. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, looks up toward heaven, blesses them, and begins to break and multiply. 5,000 plus people eat and are satisfied and 12 baskets full of broken pieces and fish are picked up afterwards. He sends his disciples off in a boat and then after bidding them farewell, he actually comes walking to them on the water. They're all scared to death, verse 50. He says, don't be afraid, it's me. He gets into the boat, the wind stops. And this is an interesting comment from Mark. They were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I've, I've said to you before, one of the ways I read the Bible and other texts, but particularly the Bible, is to drop a sentence out or a paragraph out or an episode out and then put it back in and see what difference it makes. That, that verse 52, it could easily have not been in there. They were greatly astonished. But it is in there. Why, why are, are we at a point where they shouldn't be astonished? They've seen Jesus do this kind of stuff. And they've seen him just now do this extraordinary creative work of the bread. Should they not be astonished anymore? Mark seems to think maybe they shouldn't be, you know? They hadn't gained insight from the loaves. Their hearts were still kind of hardened. They get across in verse, in chapter seven then, the Pharisees and the scribes come to him and they see that his disciples are eating bread with impure hands, that is unwashed hands. 
It's, you know, it's breaking the rules that the Pharisees and the Jews had established. You don't eat without carefully washing your hands and observing these traditions. Um, so the scribes and the Pharisees ask him in verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They eat their bread with impure hands. Jesus says to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. And then he goes on after having talked to them about their hypocrisy. He says in verse um, 9, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Well, if a man says to his father or mother, Anything of mine that you might have been helped by is korban, that is, devoted to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. You, you sort of put it over here in this sacred religious category and, and, and separate it from, from doing good for your own parents. And thus you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do a lot of things like this. Now Jesus says to the multitude, um, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a man which going into him can defile him. The things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So then he leaves the multitude, his disciples say, can you explain this one to us, please? He says to them in verse 18, are you too so uncomprehending? Do you not see that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated, thus declaring all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. For within, from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit. Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the person. He then goes off to Tyre and Sidon up into Gentile territory. This woman comes to him. She's a Syrophoenician Gentile. She's following him around, asking for him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he says to her in verse 27, let the children be satisfied first for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here's what I mean, his bread just keeps showing up. Um, and she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. For this answer, your faith is rewarded. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And she goes back and finds that it in fact is true. Then we have one of the two episodes where Mark gives us a miracle that no one else does, and it is the healing of the deaf and the dumb man, which I argue is a picture of his disciples, that they are still kind of deaf and not quite articulating the truth. And so here is a picture of his work in them. The man's ears are open, the impediment of his tongue is removed, and he begins to speak plainly. 
In chapter 8, Mark includes, along with Matthew, another uh, feeding of a multitude. Verse 5, how many loaves do you have this time? Seven. And a few small fish. And once again, Jesus feeds thousands. And now they cross back over. Pharisees are looking for a sign. No sign will be given. Then they embark and go back across. And verse 14 tells us, and they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so they started talking with each other about the fact they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, says, Why are you talking about not having any bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Is your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000? How many large baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And then they get across, and here's the healing of the blind man who has to be healed twice in order to see. Mark then follows that with Peter's profession of faith. It is worth throwing in one verse, two verses maybe, from Matthew chapter 16, verse 11. we've had a similar kind of a sequence about them in the boat talking about bread and Jesus saying, really? You guys talking about bread? Um, in verse 11, Jesus says, then how is it you do not understand that I'm not talking to you about bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then this is where Mark inserts the, the episode um, about the blind man and gives no conclusion that the disciples understand anything at that point. Matthew goes ahead and says, then they understood, verse 12, that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then you get the profession of faith. So, they seem to be understanding something that it has to do with the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees and not a loaf of bread or the leaven in the bread. Now, to be fair to the disciples, there were a lot of dietary rules and there were rules about leaven and shrimp and pigs and, you know, so there were these things. So you're, it's not just insanity on their part. Um, and yet, as Jesus' comments suggest, and there are these wonderful moments, I mean, you just, there are moments where you just got to kind of smile. It's like Jesus is saying, they're in the boat, and, he, and he's saying, did I just hear you guys talking about bread? Seriously? Are you guys talking about bread? I, yeah, these are wonderful moments. So they understand something. What was it Jesus wanted them to understand? 
And what is it that Matthew is suggesting that they are understanding? Even if you take that teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, how do you unpack that? And I'm not sure that's all there is to this. What was it that Jesus wanted them to understand, have their eyes and ears open to, and be able to see? And again, please understand, I'm not sitting here with the right answer neatly tucked away in my brain, hoping that you can come up with it, okay? I got a thought or two, I'll share them. But I'm very seriously asking you, what do you, this is an interesting question. What, what was it that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand? And it is interesting that the bread thing is a theme. It runs through this whole thing. So it's not, not a bad thing to take that image and say, okay, what is he trying to teach me now at this point in this whole sequence? I don't necessarily know like what this has to do with the teaching of the Pharisees, but I mean I took it to he's trying to teach them like I'm always gonna provide for you. Like didn't you see how I provided for all of those mm -hmm. people? And you're still talking about bread on this boat. <laughs> and yeah, I will always provide everything you need. So I don't know how I mean, maybe it has something to do with the Pharisees. Like, if the Pharisees were not trusting enough to even provide for their parents, um, then, like, hoarding and greeting all of the money that they are giving unto God. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Like, they're not trusting that God will provide for them. That's an interesting connection, yeah. Uh, are there are there specific lines or pa uh, parts of the passage that that point to the provision idea? I think I think that does do it. It's interesting. The hypocrisy issue and the other issues having to do specifically with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and of Herod, the Herodians, is in chapter 7, isn't it? That's where you get that. And then in chapter 8, where you get the second feeding, which, which is an interesting thing, that you, that you get that second episode and that Matthew and Mark give it to us. Um, that's when he says to them, um, how many loaves, where, where is it? I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 19, verse 18, do you not, do you not remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets did you pick up? When we did it for the 4,000, how many baskets did you pick up? Do you not yet understand? And I, and I do think you're, you're, you're right. There is a provision thing here. And, and that's why I started back where I did in chapter 6. And, and it would be interesting. I, I, I want to reread the first five chapters and see if I'm missing something there. 
But it's interesting that it starts back there where he sends them out and says, I don't want you to take bread. I want you to be utterly dependent. No money, no bread, no food, nothing. Because I want you to learn, I will take care of you. And so now, after all of this, when he says, where were we, uh, verse 21, do you not yet understand? Um, I, th I think you're right. There is certainly a provision element here. It brings to mind things like uh, Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Observe the flowers, observe the birds. Why are you anxious about food? Why are you anxious about tomorrow? Do you not know that your heavenly Father will take care of you? Do you understand that? Tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. Let it come. But trust God today. Your heavenly Father takes care of you. Yeah. That's one worth learning over and over and over. I gotta say, you are, you are, you're, what are you, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there. Several of you are about to graduate. Um, I'm having conversations with some of you about that very thing. Um, and I've commented there are many points in my own life where you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And all of a sudden, what is what feels so secure and settled and good right now seems to be disappearing from you. Um, I know these feelings. Um, those are those become good times because they force this issue. You know, as long as I've got my job and my check is coming in each month and it, blah blah blah, it's so easy to forget that it is God who provides your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus says, yeah, that's how, that's how I want to be in your life. I want to give you that daily bread. I want our Heavenly Father to give you that daily bread. Do you understand that, that the triune God is there for you? Yeah. Yeah, in the, I'm, I'm in like the of what the 
that. Well, you're right to take us to that passage right there in Matthew. Where were you? 16? 15, yeah, okay. I Matthew. Right. And so we were just working out of Mark 8, and that would take us back to Mark 7. Yeah, you're, um, you're probably uh, doing a little spoiler alert on the Gospel of John and some of what you were saying. Um, no, it's quite all right. I, I'm being completely facetious or silly, but but I will push you just a little bit. I'm not sure everything you're saying there is in Mark or Matthew, and so I I kind of want us to to push ourselves to say what is Jesus saying at that point because it's very similar in the two Matthew 15 and Mark 7. The issue is first, the disciples aren't washing their hands the way they should. Jesus takes it to, um, I think that's an Isaiah prophecy, uh, uh, this people honors me with their lips, their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. I'm sorry, that's Mark 7, 7. You replace the commandment of God with, tra with human traditions. You set aside the commandment to honor your father and mother. And you've, you become comfortable in, in this tradition that you've created. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition. And then Jesus goes into the issue of what defiles a person. Yeah, what all you see in there? He calls them hypocrites. Raises a question of the heart, doesn't he? The inner person. And does seem to draw our gaze inward, not in a way that denigrates the material physicality of the created order, but in a way that moves our, our standards of judgment away from the comfortable judgments we like to make, the, the rules we like to come up with for who the truly spiritual people are. And, and you're looking at fairly obvious things and it draws us away from that to look inward and frankly to look inward at ourselves rather than to be making judgments about others. Do we all recognize how, how inclined we are to be like the Pharisees with the, the, the sin that we know, the leaven of the Pharisees? What is that leaven? It seems to me at least in part um, a, a tendency to want to make judgments in shallow ways and frankly to live at a kind of shallow level. Um, it's this do not handle, do not taste, do not touch kind of regulations that Paul will also warn against. Do you know how, how much you tend to do that? I, I'll tell you, I've been, I've been preaching about this stuff and trying to deal with it for decades now 
and, and, I, and at the same time, I find myself making these judgments, I, I just do. I see a certain person who looks a certain way or is doing a certain thing, or, and it could be on the campus, it could be in a church building. I, and, I, and I realize I just made a judgment. I just decided, well, they're probably not so spiritual. Or, you know. or I or look at someone else and I go, oh, those, those folks are good. They, they, I do it. And it's interesting, the standards of judgment change, but if you examine yourself, you will probably find them. And Jesus is moving us away from that. It's a comfortable place to live. Uh, and it draws you together with people much like yourself. That's always comfortable. And add social media in, and you know, that helps. Um, and, and yet Jesus is saying, no, I want you to examine what's coming from inside. What's coming from inside? It strikes me right now, in a way that it hadn't before, the centrality of the Word of God and His commandments. That if you're going to look inside, what are you going to look at? Well, it's not a bad thing to go, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and, and go right down the list, and one of them is, honor your father and your mother, and say, where is my heart on that? Where is my heart on adultery, on coveting, on truthfulness and integrity and trustworthiness? What's in my heart? And what would it mean then for my heart to be renewed? What would it mean for me to follow Christ from deep within? It, it, we will make the connection maybe a little bit more next week, but, but don't miss the fact that that passage in both Matthew and Mark, flows right into, uh, well, no, I guess it doesn't flow right into Peter's profession, but, but it leads us into it pretty soon, doesn't it? And, and then into Jesus' invitation to follow. To die to yourself and deny yourself as a way of getting down deep into your heart and letting go. I, I don't know. What, any other thoughts? It's it's still. Um, it's mostly a question, isn't it, with Jesus here? What's coming out of your heart? That's what I want to know. I'm not real concerned about whether you've got an impressive, sort of religious presentation of self. That's interesting that, that we associate that with people who are just adamantly refusing Christ. Um, yeah, I think there are, and I, and I do think part of what I'm arguing from Mark is, is that it's a process. Their hearts are still hard. 
but they are breaking up. Are they ever, are their hearts ever totally done with being hard? I, I doubt it. Not in this life. Peter will continue to stumble. I mean, well after Peter professes faith and Jesus says, the Father has revealed this to you. You're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, Peter immediately <laughs> says the wrong thing. And then, of course, later will completely deny that he even knows Jesus. Is there a hardness of heart? Yeah, that's a hardness of heart. And yet it's someone in whom his heart is being <coughs> softened and remolded. Um, there's a place in Matthew, and it may be in what we do next week, um, but I don't think it is, where he, where he talks about um, the hardness of heart, um, but, but also associates the hardness, not with, you know, sort of their hearts are being hardened, but, but they are hardened of heart because they aren't listening to the Father. That, that, that sort of is part of the hardening so to the loosening, the molding of the heart would seem to be inclining toward the word of God. Do you even like echo like uh, what you're saying? Like sometimes Peter gets it and then he doesn't. Just a little bit later, like the Messiah, but then like the next part is when Jesus mm -hmm. tells, or Peter says, "You are the Christ," and then. Jesus tells them, like, I'm going to die in this way. And Peter's like, no, you won't. And then Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. So you're like, wait, you were just, Peter, you were doing great. Yeah. And then yeah. start, like, didn't get that part, so. And this is part of why we all love Peter. I, you know, you just <laughs> can identify with him so well. Um, it, there's, I'm sure there's more to try to pull out of there, but um, that let's leave that much there and, and then go over to John 6 um, and for the last 12 minutes or so that we've got see what John does in sort of helping us think further about the bread and sort of the question then is how does John add to our answer of what Jesus wants us to understand and again bread is what's in view here so in chapter 6, you have um, initially the feeding of the 5,000. And then he sends them across the water, just like we have in Mark and Matthew. Um, comes to them. In verse 22, we have the next day, the multitude looking for him. They go across, they find him at Capernaum. Verse 25, Rabbi, how did you get here? When did you get here? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. And they ask him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
remember the purpose of John's gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would believe in him. And then they kind of just don't really respond to that. They say to him, uh, so then what would you do for a sign that we might see and believe you? We, you know, yeah, we will believe you. What, what, can you give us a sign? What work would you perform? For instance, it comes to mind that our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You know, it's written, it's biblical. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. <laughs> oh, Jesus says, oh my goodness, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he said to him, Oh Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now at that point, what have we got? They're, they're pretty happy about having gotten filled the way they did, and it was a pretty great show, and they're ready to have another one. So they do the whole manna thing. Jesus, oh, you know, manna's a good idea. You sort of did that yesterday. Can we do that again? And then Jesus redirects. But he's not being completely clear here. Your translation will probably say in verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down out of heaven. It can be written into English as either that which or he who. It could be bread which comes down out of heaven, that bread. And it would appear the same way as if it were referring to a he. And so at that point, they don't know he's saying anything about a person, much less himself. So they're thinking, like the woman at the well, what, you can give me living water that I don't have to keep coming back for? You can give me bread that will just keep coming day after day? Yeah, we'd like that. And then Jesus says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. For this is my Father's will, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. His audience, therefore, is grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, it's not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, his father and mother we know. How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answers and says to them, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world, this is my flesh. 
the Jews therefore were arguing with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to him, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats of me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Do you hear that? Can you hear it for the first time? Do you understand why there were rumors about cannibalism in the early church? Um, verse 60, so many of the disciples when they heard this said, this is hard stuff. Who can hear it? Jesus, conscious that his disciples were troubled by all this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And then listen to this question. What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that not, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then he says, as it says here, John says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus says to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus says, and, and yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, who was going to betray him. And I take the comment about him knowing who would betray him to be a specific, back in verse 64, to be specifically with reference to Judas, that in choosing Judas to follow, Jesus knew that it would be Judas who would be the one. Um, what, do you, what does this add to what Jesus wants us to understand? And, and I guess because we are running out of time, I direct you to the verses 62 and 63, where he says to his disciples, so are you having trouble with this? Me telling you you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood? What are you making of that? What would you make of it if I were to return to heaven? What would my words mean to you then? If I were to return to heaven, what would you make of what I just said there in verses 54 and so on? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. What then does it mean to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. I think what he's saying is that whatever it means, 
it's got to have the same meaning after I physically disappear from this earth as it does now. So when I am gone, it will still be absolutely essential that you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that that be in some way this spiritual feeding, which is what Lauren was pointing to in her earlier comments. But I think that's his logic here, that whatever this means now, when I'm standing here in front of you, um, it's going to mean years from now when I am gone and no longer physically present, it will still be absolutely essential for you to feed on me. Find your nourishment here, find your life here, um, eat and drink of me spiritually. But don't let spiritually make it too ephemeral and weird. I, you know, what does it mean to feed on Christ? I, I think that's what's going on here. But it's pretty gripping imagery, isn't it? And, and, and I wouldn't want us to lose the force of it, the power of it, that, that he calls us now literally to find our life in him. This is, this is worth taking back to the Old Testament sacrificial system for a minute. Um, that, that's an odd thing for us, but that's, that's mostly because we buy our chicken pieces already wrapped in cellophane. And, and so we, we have no, no sense whatsoever of what's going on when we eat meals and where meat of any sort is involved that there is life passing from life to life and that something dies in order that something else may live and be nourished and it happens repeatedly and and what happens in the old testament sacrificial system is that basic way of being in the world for homo sapiens is is not some weird thing that that's that's how homo sapiens as the omnivores that we seem to be are are nourished and, and stay alive. The sacrificial system takes that and, and gives it this sacred meaning and, and, and points to the idea that in every meal, whether it's a tomato or a chicken, that, that in every meal, the self-giving God is giving of himself in all of these very specific ways. Um, and, and then you, you incorporate that into the sacrificial system and, and in the sacrifice for sin, the animal does give its life for the worshiper and, and some portion of that animal is consumed and becomes nourishment and life. The second part of the system when it's fully in play is the sacrifice, uh, the whole burnt offering and I would argue that that represents the worshiper who gives himself, herself up fully to God in response to his provision for, uh, through the sacrifice of sin. And, and with those two steps, God's provision and a response that is dying to self completely, that establishes peace with God and then you have what are called the peace offerings or the fellowship offerings and that's where you have these larger festival kind of situations. Um, 
none of it is taken lightly. And, and while there are animals consumed, there is always a sense of the, of the significance of the honoring, of the honoring of the life, and of a recognition of life passing from life to life. And so Jesus, as the Lamb of God, and remember that's how he's introduced at the beginning of John here, Jesus as the Lamb of God is giving himself up that we might live. And, and in that sacrificial system, that is a very literal kind of a thing. You don't live without nourishment, and you don't live without death feeding your living. And so this language here harkens back to all of that and still calls us then to say, okay, what would that mean now? What would it mean to feed on Christ in my heart, my mind, my spirit? It obviously points us to the Last Supper, to the Lord's Supper, to the body and blood being presented to us, and that Jesus is spiritually present and as present to our spirit, in spirit, as the elements are to our senses. And we feed on him. And I think there is, in some mysterious way there, a, a spiritual feeding, a mysterious, distinctively spiritual feeding. But that should not be separated from the active, conscious, deliberate giving up of ourselves to his word and in prayer and in practices that will enable us to draw life from, from Jesus. Uh, and all that's coming out of bread. I, I, I just find it, it, it really is something, isn't it? I, it's kind of, this, is, this has been a whole new dimension for me just in these last several months and coming into this class. Um, and then the movement from what's going on there in the Mark sequence to what happens when you, when you open up John 6 is really quite, uh, quite remarkable. Um, yeah, any, any, we're five minutes over, so please feel free, we gotta stop, but if you wanted to sit and talk any further, we can certainly do that for a few minutes, but thank you, and we will get to the, um, profession of faith with Peter and, and that sequence next week, and, and also try to look into the transfiguration.